Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Before we launch the new season on climate change next week, and having just heard about meritocracy and urban violence, I thought now would be the perfect time to revisit my interview with one of America's leading poverty researchers, Catherine Eden. She works in the domains of welfare and low-wage work through direct, in-depth observations of the lives of low-income populations, which is in her book, $2 a Day, The Art of Living on Virtually Nothing in America. Our conversation focuses on an overlooked but tragic policy failing enacted into law almost 25 years ago. It's called the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act of 1996, or as we more commonly know it, the Welfare Reform Act. Even though it was touted as a bipartisan overhaul of the welfare system, it came with a series of unintended consequences. According to policymaker and former Assistant Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, Peter Edelman, it actually increased general poverty, significantly lowering the income of some single mothers, sent those unable to meet its conditions to homeless shelters, and allowed states to control or outright eliminate welfare. We discussed the long-term consequences of welfare reform and how it has forced many Americans to live in destitution. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. I'm glad to be here. So you've been canvassing poor communities for more than 20 years. When you've returned in 2010 to work on an update on the very poor that you have researched before, you found that things had drastically changed. What did you discover? Yeah, so I began my work with low-income single mothers in my 20s and spent about a decade chronicling in the early 1990s how low-income single mothers prior to welfare reform were making ends meet, then left that work and began studying other topics like family and housing. And it was just by coincidence in 2010 that I had the good fortune to spend the summer in Baltimore interviewing a cohort of young people who'd been born in public housing and we'd been following ever since. These kids were now about 19, 20 years old, and uh, we were going back to see how they were managing. And I, I happened to come across this woman by the name of Ashley, part of our study, and went into her apartment. I was, was stunned to see that there was virtually no furniture in the house. She had a new baby. There was no baby formula in the house. Uh, I came to learn that uh, no one in the household had any source of cash income. There was no work. There was no welfare. And I think like most people, I had assumed welfare reform had worked. But um, what had happened to Ashley is she was stuck in a situation where she couldn't rely on the welfare system or on work and was living outside of either source of cash income. And I teamed up with Luke Schaefer, who is a quantitative guru of census data sets. And we were able to establish that about three and a half million children over the course of a year spend time in a household with virtually no cash income for at least three months. So a huge increase from the early 1990s prior to welfare reform. I would love for you to speak about how you came up with the $2 number, because I think that'll shed light a little bit on how you do your research and how comprehensive it is. When you use databases, 
to establish levels of extreme poverty, there are some do's and don'ts. And one is not to use the number zero. But we wanted to capture a number that was close to zero. $2 a day was a metric that the World Bank had used to measure extreme poverty in the developing world. We felt that using the lowest threshold uh, was the most powerful way to tell our story because we really wanted to talk about people who, in the world's most advanced capitalist societies, were really living apart from cash. That was really our goal. Right. The book explains that very well. There are some really heartbreaking stories. What is the experience of this level of poverty every day? When we went to the numbers, they had really raised as many questions as answers. And so the challenge for ourselves is could we go into communities where we didn't know anybody and find people like this and follow them? We followed 18 families for months and now years. And the idea was to look at, you know, what led to these spirals into two-dollar-a-day poverty? People do survive because that's part of what makes us human. But the stories of the cost of survival were so stark. Just thinking of Alva Mae Hicks down in in the Mississippi Delta selling half of her food stamps to pay her utility bill and and the food running out a, a week and a half into the month as a result and her children just being so hungry, and her daughter, Tabitha, in a quiet moment after we'd gotten to know each other pretty well, I asked her, you know, what does it feel like to be that hungry? And she said, oh, it feels like you want to be dead. That story, um, it sticks with you. We've never had people sink this low without a safety net, at least not in modern memory. So the question is here, when you sink that load to virtually no cash income, do we see the creation of a true poverty trap? This is a perfect segue to discuss the difference between AFDC, the old aid to families with dependent children, and the current TANF, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families. What is the difference between welfare before 1996 and today? So this is one of the most important stories in social policy history, and hardly anyone understands it. We used to have an entitlement to aid. You were legally entitled to a small, a modest check from the state if you can prove you were economically needy. What we did in 1996 is, well, first, we, just prior to welfare reform, we strengthened the work-based safety net through enhancing tax credits for the working poor. So that's an important part of the story. For the needy poor, we said, you got to get a job, two years and a job and five-year lifetime limit. But the real story is that welfare was no longer an entitlement. States didn't have to give it to you. And they were also allowed to spend it on other things. You have this slush fund of money you can use on virtually anything you can loosely tie to something that looks vaguely like help for somebody. You have Louisiana spending the money on crisis pregnancy centers. So states start diverting the money during the glorious 90s when people were leaving welfare mostly for jobs. Uh, and labor force participation was at an all-time high for single moms. Things looked good. They were beginning to spend their money on other things. And and then when the hard times hit in the early 2000s, they, they weren't able to get that money back. 
And in fact, every year more money is diverted. So welfare is no longer a vehicle for pulling people out of the deepest forms of poverty. One thing we found was fascinating is people would be in these incredible situations and it wouldn't even occur to them uh, to apply for welfare. Social service providers have told us they don't even bother to send clients to welfare store anymore. It's hopeless in many states. Some states maintain some a semblance of a, a cash safety net, but many states have abandoned the cash safety net altogether. Right. It turns out that really what we need is cash to live. Um, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> indeed, we need cash. I think that was the biggest takeaway for me from this book is that we need cash. And much as food stamps or SNAP have helped and work in large part uh, to feed some people, it doesn't pay for the rent and it doesn't pay for utilities. And that's what we need. We've blinded ourselves to this. It's amazing. I feel like the child shouting, the emperor has no clothes in this work. People have said to me, well, does it really matter that the safety net is gone? We have more Medicaid now. Isn't, isn't that a good thing? Well, last time I tried to use my health care card to pay my rent, it didn't work. Yeah. So cash is fungible, and it turns out that that's really important. Yeah, I think a lot of people would point that people would become lazy and all this. Uh, but actually, from reading the book and from everything that I have read on poverty, it's that the poor are incredibly enterprising, resourceful, and yes. extremely hardworking. What is yes. the false narrative about poverty and the people who are poor that you would like to rectify right now? So it's a long narrative. It goes back 400 years. But I will say that in my first book, I cataloged every penny that welfare mothers spent. It's amazing how careful they were. They're not, you know, throwing away the money. They're deploying it carefully in ways that will keep their kids fed and, and housed. So we have no evidence of this idea that if you trust the poor with cash, they'll spend it unwisely. All of our evidence is to the contrary. Yet, if you look at the last 400 years of social policy in the United States, the idea is that poverty is due to a moral failing. The only way to combat poverty is to make the experience of being poor so bad that you will discourage people from pauperism. None of this has ever been demonstrated empirically, yet we still hold on to these notions that poor people are immoral and you have to punish them in order to rid society from more people engaging in immoral behavior. So I would say to my critics, and I'd be happy to take on any of them and have done so, show me the evidence it's just not there. Poor parents tend to spend their money very, very responsibly. One of the things that they do is stretch every dollar. You told about this man who lost his pizza parlor business, and he stands by his washing machine in order to recycle the water for numerous loads of laundry. And the guy is amazing. So this is Paul Hackwilder. He's a grandfather uh, owned a family business. They had a number of stores across Ohio. 
And one by one, they went by the wayside in the aftermath of the Great Recession, uh, meaning that everyone in the family lost their job. More than 20 individuals end up living in this tiny two-bedroom wood frame house on the west side of Cleveland. That has seen a lot of wear. The front porch is beginning to sag so badly it's coming apart from the house. So these 22 people are all there living on Paul's disability check. He severed a foot with a steel beam while working in a steel mill and now can't walk on the foot. So they're living just on that little bit of money. He used excess food from the food pantry to plant a victory garden in the backyard. He and the grandkids sit up there with an air gun chasing away the rats. And then the wash, uh, the wash machine trick. You manually feed the water through the wash machine repeatedly so you can get more loads through without having to use additional water. All of these entrepreneurial strategies are, are things that he uses to get his family through this incredibly challenging time. One of the questions I think that is obvious at this point is, why is it so difficult for them to get and find real jobs? With welfare reform, we strengthened the work-based safety net and we eviscerated the safety net for the truly categorically needy. So we put all our eggs in the basket of work. And it looked like that was working in the 1990s when we had this incredibly strong economy. But now female labor force participation is actually down below what it was prior to welfare reform. It's really quite striking. We've seen no concomitant rise in the, the welfare roles. What's happening with work is it's changing. A very big problem is the disappearance of full-time jobs for uh, high school educated or non-college educated folks. It's just become very hard to find an employer, especially one of the large employers who will take you on uh, for more than 30 hours a week. And of course, now these employers require infinite flexibility in your schedule. So it's uh, almost impossible for many to take second jobs to compensate for the first job. In many of these jobs, you don't know how many hours you're going to get from week to week or month to month. So you might suddenly hit a time during the year when your rent is due, but you only got 14 hours at, at work. Combine that with vulnerable personal situations, like the extremely unsupportive extended network of one of the characters in the book, Ray McCormick, who sometimes offer her hand up, but more often drag her down into one crisis or another. Ray was named Employee of the Month at her local Walmart twice before losing a job uh, merely because she didn't have enough gas to get to work because an extended family member had taken her car out and driven up all the gas without telling her, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's devastating. She had called and said she would be late that day, and they told her not to bother to show up again if she couldn't come on time. And also what I loved about her story is that she had memorized the codes in order to check out faster. So that's why she was named cashier yeah. of the month twice that same month. I mean, who does that? Memorize who the does? codes. <laughs> exactly. I mean, one thing that I think really comes clear is many of these people actually find a lot of meaning and the low-wage jobs maybe we would 
you know, uh, a shoe. <laughs> and Ray brought her whole self to that job. She went there with her heart and soul determined to be the best employee. And yet you can understand the employer's part of view, right? He's got a thousand people probably lined up for those jobs. A recent study by Peter Behrman and Adam Reich shows that when a Walmart opens, it can get as many applications as to the freshman class at Harvard, and in some ways can be almost as selective. So when somebody like Ray says, hey, I can't get gas in my car, the, the manager says, why bother with her? There's more people in line who might be less complicated. Yes, yes, that is true. But, you know, there's a really neat thing that's been happening uh, among employers because, really, turnover plagues low-wage employers. It's expensive to replace people. And so a consortium of employers have been getting together in ERNs, in Employment Resource Networks, and they're basically sharing a social worker who Ray McCormick can call and get her that one-time couple gallons of gas, and get her back to work. And early research has shown that turnover has decreased dramatically. Almost all of us need work with a little bit of give, right? These jobs have no give. And it's in part because the employers do need people on the floor. But by this simple act of coming together and saying, how can we support workers who have an occasional Ray McCormick problem? It's a, a win for the employers and a win for the employees who want to remain loyal and stay employed. You mentioned how little it would take to make these dramatic changes so that work does work for the poor, that they can show up, and that also the employer can be happy. What would it take, actually, to make this better? When we asked people what would they need to really make it, their aspirations were so modest most people said full-time work with benefits and uh, 12 to $13 an hour. This is not a lot of money. You know, that's $28,000 a year. Full-time work should be available to anyone who wants it. Employers say they're clamoring for workers. Let's figure out a solution that would benefit everyone and wouldn't pit employers against workers. So what's one of the best ideas that you've seen out there really work? During the Great Recession, the federal government allowed states to spend some of their welfare dollars on a subsidized jobs program, where they said to an employer, hey, add a position that you were kind of on the fence about and that maybe you didn't feel you can afford, and uh, we'll help subsidize that worker. What they found is that employers loved it, and quite a lot of uh, those employers maintained those positions after the recession. They found that the workers were good workers. We've got so much work in our communities that needs to be done that the market will never fulfill. We have trash that needs to be picked up from our streets. We need smaller classrooms for our school children. We need more park rangers <laughs> in our state and national forests. The list goes on and on, but there's so much work that is being left undone. These are things the market is not uh, likely to replace with robots. These are oftentimes high-touch, community-level jobs that require 
the expertise of humans. So we probably need to rethink work and we probably need to expand our ideas of the role of the public sector as well as encouraging the private sector to do all it can. And we also probably need to think about more ways of knitting people into their communities. Perhaps the $2 a day poor are just on the front line of a trend that's really going to fundamentally alter how we think about work and, and personal identity. What do you think the future could look like there? I don't know. One thing we really learned from the poor in this book that was like super surprising was that when we asked people what they wanted us to tell policymakers, to a person, they did not mention any kind of handout. And to a person, they said something like, my suffering will have been worth it if I can help just one person. This idea of contributing to community and being valued for what you can contribute was the thing that they felt was most important. And the thing they they wanted is a chance to demonstrate their value as community members through their contributions. Wow, right? How would a community look if we really valued everyone for what they can contribute? There's something there in these responses, I think, that signal the way forward, that in some sense we need to honestly value everyone. Merely uh, writing a check isn't showing someone that you value their contribution. How can we truly do that as a community? That's a really big, complex question, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I hope we will find the answer in some way soon for our society. Yeah. What do you think is the effect of this destitution in our midst for our society at large? I think what we're doing is we're making a set of policy choices that will further limit the mobility of the poorest Americans. We really could see the, the emergence of almost a caste system. But historically, you know, there's been movement even from the very bottom of society. And I think what we may see is, uh, in some instances, it's just been too much, and they, they can't spring back. I've been studying the poor for my whole career, and the level of trauma is beyond what I've seen before. The amount that we would have to invest now to make these people whole is so tremendous when we could have simply prevented it fairly inexpensively in the first place. We're creating a very, very expensive problem. Sometimes you can do a tremendous amount of good without spending as much money as you might think. So, for example, there was a federal experiment called Moving to Opportunity I was involved in evaluating. It basically moved families in high-rise public housing, not to great neighborhoods, but to sort of average neighborhoods. At the end of the, the study, even in, as the study was going on, people sh started showing dramatic improvements in physical health and, and mental health. And the improvements in mental health were on the order of what you would get if you had a full battery of treatments from experts in mental health. Simply by moving people from these distressed high-rise public housing projects to just average average neighborhoods. Interesting. 
Well, looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? People often say, like, how do you do this kind of work? Uh, the secret of it is that it's the people themselves. Looking at Paul's ingenuity and his, his deep uh, religious faith, people are a real testament. I remember this one woman who had been living in her car with her two sons, and she grabbed my hand, and she was the one who first said, you know, if my suffering could help even one person, it would all have been worth it. And uh, when I went down to Mississippi to read portions of the book about Tabitha to her prior to the publication of the book, I thought she was going to be upset. But she started crying and, and uh, when probed, said, I never thought my suffering would mean something. The people that we've had the privilege to get to know through this book are just really beautiful and, and uh, I think it's hopeful work. Thank you very much, and thank you for your tremendous work. <laughs> it's a pleasure to talk to you. Likewise. And I love the new podcast. Thank you. The question that really remains in my mind is, how is a country that is proud of its capitalist heritage and strong work ethic failing some of its most hardworking and resourceful people and even punishing them for being poor? Making them suffer more is making it worse both for them and for all of us in our society. And yet, they are so resilient, they survive. They survive because that's part of what makes us human. As it turns out, we all are wired for survival. My most hopeful moment today is learning that the poor want to be valued for their contribution to society, even if it means it's their suffering that they contribute. Investing in humanity is the only way to strengthen our communities going forward. Next week, our guest is Katherine Richardson. She's the leader of the Sustainability Science Center at the University of Copenhagen, where she's also professor of biological oceanography. In addition, she is one of the 15 members of the expert panel appointed by the UN Secretary General to report on the 2030 Sustainable Development Agenda. We'll be talking about the practical long-term needs for nutrition and energy for billions of people, finding solutions within our finite resources, and that we are approaching a societal tipping point of behavior change to ensure that humanity will prevail on Earth. We need to transform our society, and that means we have to envision a scenario, a picture of what does the world look like when resources are dealt out in such a way that nine and a half or 10 billion people can live on these resources and then work backwards for how we get there. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Zumbu. Additional production by Brooke Sayan. Listen to us online at futurehindsight.com or your favorite streaming service.